Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership music executive, musician, and author David Liebert. After realizing chart success in the late 1960s with a group called The Happenings, he served as Alice Cooper's tour manager and went on to work with several top acts, including George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, Bootsy's Rubber Band, Living Color, Sheila E., Cool and the Gang, and P-Funk offshoot Kiddo. He also wrote songs for groups including The Tokens, The Chiffons, and Jury and the Pacemakers, and this year is releasing his autobiography titled Rock and Roll Warrior. David, how are you? Thank you for joining the show. I'm fine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Outstanding. And where is here for you right now? I live in Southern California in the uh, uh, high desert, just adjacent to Joshua Tree, about 125 miles uh, east of L.A. Not a bad place to be. I'm from Los Angeles originally, and I'm out in the... Uh, Charlotte area, but um, I know that area well, and I've enjoyed the desert many times. Yeah, it's really nice out here. I'm, uh, it was a good move for me. So I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Well, we're happy to have you on the show. Thank you for taking time out to uh, join us. My pleasure. So 
let's start, you know, from the beginning a little bit to get viewers familiar with, uh, you know, where you came from and how you got to where you are today. Um, David, where are you from originally? What was, uh, you know, growing up like for you and what drew you to music? Um, I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. That's uh, just a stone's throw from New York City. And um, I, uh, I used to hang out with some guys on the on either a street corner or the parking lot of a restaurant we used to frequent. And uh, we used to hang out and uh, harmonize, you know, to the old doo-wop songs. And uh, we started to realize we were pretty good at this stuff. So uh, that sort of was the genesis of me getting into the music business. Uh, I, um, I started to realize that uh, maybe that's the direction I wanted to go in. Uh, that was the start of it all. I was in a band called The Happenings, and uh, we had a few hit records in the late 60s. I Got Rhythm, uh, See You in September. They were both number one records, and then we had a couple of top 10 records as well, and uh, that's how I got involved in the music business. Wow, so... What was your first big break in terms of, you know, the happenings or the music industry in general, in terms of being an artist? Well, um, I think I was working in a department store at the time, but anytime I had time off, if I had a chance, I would hit the uh, streets of Tim Pan Alley. It's a section of Broadway that houses a lot of the uh, uh, record industry companies, uh, the Brill Building is probably the most famous of them all, but there were several buildings like that. And uh, if I walked into the offices of a publisher, I would uh, tell them I was a songwriter. If it was a record company or a production company, I was in a I was in a band. And uh, this went on for quite a while until I stepped into the offices of uh, a company called Bright Tunes Productions, a company owned by a uh, a band called The Tokens. They had a couple of big hit records. Uh, <clears throat> the Lion Sleeps Tonight, the most notable one, I suppose. And uh, they had a few others as well. And uh, I played them the little demo we had and they were impressed with it. And uh, so uh, we hooked up with them, me and my uh, writing partner, Bobby Miranda, who uh, was also the lead singer of The Happenings. And uh, they gave us a little room with a piano in it, in a little room in their offices to write songs for them. And uh, that sort of was the start of it all. And they, part of the deal was they were gonna produce the happenings. Um, and they did, they ended up producing the happenings in our hit records. And, uh, and that was the genesis of my uh, uh, career in the music industry. Who are a couple of your favorite doo-wop acts and, and, you know, the ones that maybe inspired you early on? Oh, uh, we liked uh, Dion and the Belmonts. We like my uh, influence were uh, the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons. We were sort of a harmony group like they were. Of course, nobody was better than the, than the Beach Boys at that, but we were probably in second place. Um, they were the great influence, but I also listened to a lot of different, I listened to a lot of jazz at that time. So I was listening to people like, uh, 
the double six of Paris, Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross, who would, uh, uh, you know, uh, write words and harmonize to uh, well-known jazz instrumentals at the time. So that was sort of my influence. And I had taken classical piano lessons for maybe eight years, and that gave me the roots in order to, uh, you know, get serious about trying to make this all happen. How did you feel when you first heard your song on the radio? Uh, it was an unbelievable feeling. Uh, it was... Um, it was surreal to say the least. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a bit of a history with uh, See You in September. Uh, it almost didn't make it, but then uh, WABC uh, picked it up. They were the biggest top 40 station in the country and it all blossomed from there and uh, ended up becoming a number one record. But yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, pretty crazy. I remember the happenings were on our way. We were, uh, in the Bobby Miranda's car on our way to a, a weekend gig in Washington, D.C. And uh, just as we were about to leave the um, uh, the area where we could still listen to WABC, out of the clear blue sky, uh, they go, here's a new one by The Happenings, you know, with the old DJ voice. Hey, here's a new one by The Happenings, a brand new group. I think you're going to like it. It's called See You in September. And uh, we had to pull we had to pull off to the side of the road and we just went crazy, laughing, crying, hugging each other, screaming. That I remember very clearly. That was the, that it was the moment, I suppose, when I started to think, gee, this actually may all work. <laughs> How old were you about at that time? 22 or 23, 66, 23. Did you guys and, get to do any uh, TV appearances? Oh, we did a lot. We did uh, uh, we did Mike Douglas. We did Johnny Carson a couple of times. We did um, uh, the Smothers Brothers show. That was a big one. Um, we did a lot of regional shows like Clay Cole, Jerry Blavitt out of Philadelphia. I don't know, you, you know. You know the Gita with the heater, Jerry Blavitt. And uh, the one notable thing about Jerry Blavitt's show was there was a lady backstage who said to me, my God, it, I can't imagine what it's like to have a hit record. Uh, I can, It must be wonderful. I can only imagine what it was like. Uh, six months later, she had a big hit record of her own and went on to be one of the most... Uh, one of the biggest uh, recording artists in history. And I'm talking about Aretha Franklin. Imagine her envying the happenings. <laughs> wow. So that story always stuck in my mind. <laughs> she didn't have to wait long to find out what it felt like to have that record. Did you get to witness her actually singing or did she lip sync or what? No, no, she was just a... Uh, um, an artist on the Blavitt show on the same show we were on. So we were all kind of backstage waiting for our turn okay. to perform. That's how that occurred. Yeah. What uh, was maybe one of the top 
live experiences that you recall that you could share with us from that period of your career? Hmm. Well, we uh, a couple of things. We uh, the first sort of uh, big time tour we did was the uh, the Gene Pitney tour, and that was a lot of fun. That was with uh, the Buckinghams. We became friendly with them, uh, and we did a Dick Clark tour, and uh, that was with Lou Christie. Uh, he had Lightning Strikes, a huge hit there, and uh, who else was on that tour? The Capitals, cool jerk, da 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 da, cool jerk. Uh, I can't remember who else was over. Uh, we um, and then the, uh, we went to um, the San Remo Festival in Italy. That was that was pretty amazing. Uh, who was the Hollies are on, on that festival? Share. Uh, we recorded a version, an Italian version of Seeing in September, uh, and it became a big hit in Italy. I thought that was kind of cool. Who did you uh, witness back then that just really blew your socks off as a performer? Uh, we did some college dates with Mitch Ryder. I thought he was phenomenal. He, I don't think he gets enough credit for... Uh, what a great blues singer he really was. He was, he was pretty amazing. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else we worked with that was, uh, uh, we worked with Wilson Pickett. We opened for Wilson Pickett a couple of times and uh, we, um, I think we opened for Vanilla Fudge at a, a gig in New Jersey and then you know, the happenings came from New Jersey. So that was, <clears throat> and uh, they kind of snubbed us. They had just, uh, they barely acknowledged our existence there. And I really, I took it very personally. Uh, and, you know, it could have been for a lot of reasons. They just finished doing a tour with having Led Zeppelin as their opening act for Zeppelin's first uh, American tour. So I guess hanging out with the happenings was not high on our list of things to do. Uh, it's funny because Carmine Apiece, Vanilla Fudge's drummer, is one of my very closest friends today. And, uh, you know, we laugh about that now. Uh, he, um, he gets a, he, he'll, he knows I'm a sports freak. He's a bit of a sports freak too, but he doesn't admit it. And uh, when there's a game on, maybe 30 seconds to go, he'll call me up just to irritate me if he's with somebody. And I know it's him because I can see the caller ID. So I know why he's calling. He's calling for me to say, whoever this is, you're either a musician, you're English, you're gay, you're a gay English musician, you're a woman, or you're Carmine Apiece because who the hell would call me at a time? Who else would call me at a time like this? He never gets tired of hearing that from me when he calls. <laughs> oh man well it sounds like that was quite a um you know career and experiences that you had with the happenings uh, what a great time of the music business and um why uh, how and why did it uh, come to its conclusion why did it wind down with the happenings well 
the tokens were producing us and they thought they had discovered the formula uh, to the happening success. And that was remakes of older records like see in September, um, several years earlier was a hit by a, a, a group called the Tempos. They had sort of a cha-cha version of it. You know, we had a more modern version. I Got Rhythm was a George Clinton, uh, George, George Clinton, George Gershwin song. Big difference. Uh, Go A Little Girl was a Steve Lawrence hit. Uh, Mammy was an Al Jolson hit. Those were our four biggest hits. But then we did some others. Uh, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Uh, music, music, a bunch. Of, and they just weren't very big hits. And uh, I felt what we needed to do was to take what we did best, which was harmony, and apply it to more contemporary uh, themes and, and structure. Sort of like what Crosby, Stills, and Nash were doing at that, at that moment. And uh, we actually went in and made a, a new album, which I thought was terrific. But uh, I guess I had a difference of opinion with the, uh, with the rest of the happening because they thought um, the, the, uh, the future for the happenings was playing nightclubs and colleges, which they felt they could do without ever having another hit. And I felt that the nightclub thing was the very, uh, was a very definition of obsolete. Uh, I, I just didn't want to do it. So I left and uh, we went on our separate ways and uh, uh, did a few different jobs, uh, a booking agent for the Will at Alexander agency. That was pretty tortuous. Um, I was booking a club out in Long Island. Uh, I was the road manager for Rare Earth. That was a pretty good gig. That so went on for several. How, how long did that last for Rare Earth? Several months. And then uh, one day I got a call. That was a great gig because. Uh, they work mostly weekends. I could live in New York, make all the arrangements, fly to Detroit to pick them up, you know, go out and do the weekend with them, put them on a plane, send them back to Detroit and hop on a plane myself and go back to New York. It was a pretty sweet uh, uh, job. And then one day I got a call from Johnny Padell, Alice Cooper's booking agent, who said that uh, the Alice Cooper band was looking for a new tour manager. Um, and so I got hired to do that. I did that for about four years and learned so much about the music business from Shep Gordon, you know, their legendary manager, Supermensch, as they call him. And, uh, and of course, from Johnny Fidel as well, who, in my opinion, is probably the greatest booking agent that ever lived. The world's greatest asker. He could ask for the most unreasonable of things from promoters and other people. Anyway, I thought that uh, I had made the biggest mistake of my life. Uh, um, this whole Alice Cooper thing, uh, it's just my first perception of, of it was 30 or so people crawling all over the, all the gear and equipment like giant insects. And I didn't know what the hell was going on. Chef Gordon said, eh, just observe, David. Uh, you know, you'll get the hang of it. And I thought I had made the biggest mistake of my life. 
but uh, within a week or so, everything started to fall into place. And I realized this was, this was the gig of a lifetime, really. I did that for four years. What, what, David, was that before schools out uh, hit or, or after? Actually, it, um, it was the end of killer, beginning of schools out. Right there, Alice's most formidable years, actually. So uh, it was quite a journey. It was quite an adventure to be there at that time. Um, and uh, it, was, it was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, and Rare Earth, I had uh, Peter Rivera on not too long ago. He was- Peter uh, Rivera, yep. They were a great guy. I mean, I yeah. loved that gig. They were fun. They put on a great show. Um, it was a cool gig. It was a very cushy gig. I mean, uh, you know, I could be home all week, and just fly out on the weekends. It paid well. Uh, liked everything about it. But uh, did did you miss performing, or you just kind of took right to you know the tour managing stuff? I didn't really miss performing. You know, every once in a while I would do something. For instance, uh, I sang background. You know, I was in a studio all the time when. Uh, you know, uh, Alice Cooper band was recording and um, I would be re recruited, routinely recruited from time to time by Bob Ezrin, their producer, to sing background vocals and things of that nature. So I never really completely uh, stopped being a performer, although I wasn't performing on stage anymore, of course. What would you say it was... Um is Alice Cooper's greatest talent? Is it just being sort of a visionary? Yeah, he um, he's a very bright guy. He, um, he and Chef came to the conclusion that the two most saleable commodities in entertainment was violence and sex. And uh, the whole Alice Cooper persona was sort of built on that, you know evil, sex, violence, all that kind of stuff. Uh, all, you know, although really in sort of campy tongue, tongue in cheek fashion, you know, Alice, mm -hmm. you know, Alice wasn't an evil guy, you know, he liked, he liked uh, drinking beer and playing golf with Perry Como. Does that sound like a monster to you? <laughs> kind of like the heavy metal version or hard rock version of the Fonz or something, you know, just Henry Winkler doing that. Uh, in a way, you know, um, but um, what were one or two of the most uh, crazy tour experiences you had in that role? Oh, well, there were so many, really. Uh, you'll have to buy the book to find out about all of them. But I, the couple that stand out in my mind was, uh, you know, we always had our own airplane. Uh, um, for each tour, we get a different plane. And I remember uh, I was in charge of, you know, getting a plane, leasing it for the tour. And I leased this fabulous plane, a Lockheed Electra. I don't know if you're familiar with a Lockheed. It's a big four engine turboprop. It was sort of the, the plane that was the transition in between prop planes and pure jets. It was perfect for us. It went 300 miles an hour which was, you know, the perfect distance because, uh, uh, you know, the trucks basically had a 400 mile uh, limitation if we had a gig the next day. Unfortunately, 
I guess I didn't do my due diligence carefully enough. And uh, it turned out I leased the plane from a company that didn't actually own the plane and had no, uh, no authority to lease me that plane in the first place. Oops, my bad. So uh, after we paid a whole bunch of things up front, that uh, company came and demanded that we, they demanded more money even, uh, otherwise they were gonna repossess the plane. Now, I don't know whether you know Chef Gordon's reputation, but he's not the kind of guy that you would want to mess with in that way. And he was mad at, you know, he was upset with me, but nothing like he, uh, his, his, um, his anger was really directed directly towards that leasing company. And the next day, he went down with a couple of secret service agents that he had befriended at an Alice Cooper tour, believe it or not along with a couple of other characters of, show, shall, we, shall we say, uh, a couple of other people, shall we say, of questionable character. The, they all went down there, and uh, I wasn't privy to what uh, transpired while they were down there, and I knew better than to ask. But when Shep came back, uh, he had restructured a whole new deal, and, and uh the plane was basically hours after that. All we had to do was pay the expenses. There were no leasing fees or anything. And, uh, and I negotiated a little thing uh, for me into that deal. And that was to get a flying lesson or two from, uh, you know, from, the, from the crew, which really meant nothing more than uh, after the plane had taken off, uh, achieved uh, altitude and cruising speed and well on its way to the next destination, they let me steer the plane for a couple of minutes. Um, so it was really no big deal, right? Well, it was a big deal to our opening act on that uh, tour, Susie Quattro, who didn't, who was nervous about being on a plane in the first place, but they really, uh, she couldn't really refuse riding on uh, Alice Cooper's plane along with their band and crew, free of charge. Uh, but I remember after that first lesson, as I exited the cockpit, she was waiting for me outside the cockpit door. And she says, David, I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't fly the plane. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I guess the, the thought of David Lieber behind the wheel of a, a big commercial four engine plane was more than she was willing to deal with. Uh, since I satisfied my uh, hunger for what it was like to, you know, to steer a plane like that, and also my fondness for Susie, she was a terrific gal, uh, that ended my uh, flying career. And uh, so that was, uh, that was one of the uh, things that I recall on the plane. Is is she still with us? I hadn't heard her name oh, yes, in quite a while. Oh, yes, very much so. She's actually, okay. she lives in Europe. Uh, and uh, I think she's on tour right now. And she recently released an album. It turns out she was a tremendous influence and still is to a lot of women musicians and uh, women performers because she was sort of the mold, you know. Yeah. What, was there any... Um... Anyone that Alice Cooper shared a bill with, either, either his opening act or maybe co-headliners or something like that, that one, either kicked ass or two, was a pain in the ass? Um, 
or maybe both? Well, actually, uh, Alice was very particular about who opened for him. And uh, he used Susie a lot. He also used Flo and Eddie a lot. He loved those guys. Um, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, Flo and Eddie, they were uh, two of the original members of the Turtles. And uh, they were terrific. Uh, we loved having them around. And, uh, so uh, they did several tours as well as, uh, as well as Susie. I think we had ZZ Top for some dates at one time or another. Love ZZ Top. They were just sort of kick-ass, uh, good-natured guys. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. So now why did that wind down? And I know it was around, I don't know what came first, if uh, that ended and you relocated to the West Coast or what happened in there in the mid seventies for you? Well, as you can imagine, it's a pretty intense, exhausting job. And, uh, you know, at the end of every tour, I felt, you know, a few years had been subtracted from the end of my life. And, you know, I wanted to quit, but Chef Gordon kept bribing me back with bigger salaries and bigger bonuses. Uh, but after a few years, there simply wasn't enough money on the face of the earth that could keep me there anymore. I mean, quite simply, I was burnt out. And I felt that if I didn't leave and explore other possibilities uh, to cash in on whatever, you know, political capital I had or experience, I may never get the chance. So it just got to a point where I just didn't want to do it anymore. And so what prompted you to, to make the big move? I just didn't want to do it anymore. I figured I could do something else. But I mean, geographically. Oh, I think my last year working for Alice, um, I moved from uh, the East Coast to the West Coast. And I figured, you know, I'll get a job, uh, you know, doing something else. And uh, so I moved out there, quit the job, went looking for work. I figured people would be banging down my door, begging me to come work for them. Could not be further from the truth. I couldn't, I went to record companies, concert promoters, publishing, booking agencies, nobody would hire me. Um, I couldn't give myself away. Well, actually, that's not true. In the end, I did give myself away. Uh, I, that's how uh, um, Ron Strasner, who had hired me to be Rearer's road manager years earlier, was now managing Parliament Funkadelic. And he says, we'd love to hire you, David, but we're broke. We can't pay you anything. But, uh, you know, this is about to explode. And uh, I did my research and I could see he was right. This was about to become really, really big. So I took the job for nothing. Uh, and after a month or two, uh, another act, related act of his caught my eye, and that was Bootsy's Rubber Band. And uh, I said, you know, I, maybe I can open up a booking agency and I could be Bootsy's agent. And they were thrilled for me to do it because, uh, you know, I had 
taking a job for nothing. And now they had a way sort of repay me. Maybe I can make a little money. And Boosie was the opening act on every P-Funk date. So I knew he'd be making some kind of money. And that's how I opened up the David Liebert agency. And in the end, uh, I also ended up with um, Parliament Funkadelic because George Clinton loved the job I was doing for Bootsy. And uh, he wanted to go with my agency. And I had a couple of other acts. I had the Runaways. Uh, I had Evelyn Champagne King. You know, that, remember that hit record, Shame? Yeah, and, she's been uh, on the show. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I got her as the opening for, as the opening slot on an OJ's tour when I was. Uh, so uh, now I have George, Bootsy, and all the other related funk mob acts, you know, Brides of Funkenstein, uh, uh, Parlette, and um, who else? Uh, Bernie Worrell, Maceo Parker. Horny Horns, Maceo Parker. Uh, and uh, that is basically how I ended up uh, being George's booking agent through taking a job for nothing, uh, getting Boosie as a client for my agency and uh, uh, ending up with uh, George Clinton Parliament Funkadelic as well. I think that's a good message for a lot of people, you know, to get started especially in the entertainment industry is to sometimes take something for nothing or for next to nothing and just take that gamble and improve yourself. And a lot of times you can parlay that into something worthwhile. Well, you know, um, I felt the most, the most valuable commodity was knowledge and experience. So if I had to take a job for nothing to gain some of that knowledge and experience, it was a good investment. I, uh, I didn't even see it as that much of a risk. I knew something good would come from it. So, uh, yeah, I was pretty pleased with that. What was your uh, first uh, impression or early impression of George Clinton? <laughs> um, it was pretty chaotic. It was, first of all, the, you know, there's no set number of people in his band, certainly at that time, you know, uh, we would, uh, we could be on the road and uh, some kid come up and say, you know, George, I know every song I play guitar. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, the kids in the band for the next couple of weeks or, you know, something like that. And, uh, and that's, and, uh, you know, the music was just great. I mean, it just, and then I love the way George worked in the studio at that time, you know, George, is not a musician, doesn't play an instrument. And uh, he would stand there in the middle of the uh, studio and go, do this. You know, to the bass player or drummer or whoever. And then he go, okay, now you go. And he'd get a, he would get some funky beat going and it would all sort of, evolved from there into a song. He was a genius at that. It was just absolutely amazing. It's real talent and, uh, you know, and catchy phrases. And, uh, but I mean, to go to a P-Funk concert was, was an event. I mean, he did tear the roof off the sucker every night. It was uh, without fail. It was an honor to work with him. And, uh, 
also a hell of a lot of fun. So, and you guys uh, sh shared the uh, doo-wop roots. We did. We actually did. In he, New Jersey, uh, yeah. Right. He was with. I just want to testify the parliaments. But he was an interesting from a business point of view. He was an interesting combination of street smarts, of which he had a lot, and uh, just natural born instincts and intelligence. And the combination was, uh, you know, he was able to achieve things that nobody else achieved. One of them was uh, he figured, um, I guess Rivalot, Rivalot Records was, uh, the parliaments were on that label. Uh, they didn't, uh, they got screwed on their royalties. George went to court. This was in Michigan, because I think that's where the record company was, and argued his point. And the judge says, well, you know, I don't see any reason why you can't simply be on another label under another name. The judge obviously didn't understand the concept of exclusivity on a record label. So George says, all right, I'll do that. So he signed with. Um, Westbound okay. Records, and he called the band the Funkadelics. And uh, with the stipulation in that agreement that he had the right, the band had the right, he had the right to be um, uh, on another label under another name, in this case, Parliament, the Parliaments. And then that, uh, uh, so he signed you know, with uh, Westbound Records, Armin Baladian's label. And then about a year or so later, Rivolet Records, Rivolet, whatever, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, went bankrupt. George went back to the court and said, uh, I would like the name back since they went bankrupt and they gave him the name back. So he turned around and signed Parliament. He dropped the the, and just called it Parliament because it sounded more contemporary. Um, with Casablanca Records, with the stipulation in that agreement that he he had the right to be on another label somewhere else, namely Funkadelic on Westbound Records, and then George reasoned uh, that he could send it, he can sign an endless number of contracts with an endless number of record companies if he merely put in the. Uh, stipulation in the agreement that he had a right to be someone else on another label. And that's how George broke the exclusivity of an artist or a band being on a label. I don't think any artist in the history of the music industry was able to accomplish that. Because those acts, they were all on different labels. Oh, yeah. I mean, all those uh, ones you mentioned were pretty much on different labels. Yeah, they were. Uh, um, Funkadelic was on Warner's, Boosie was on Warner's, Parlette, I can't even remember who, I think they might have been on Casablanca. Casablanca, Brides of Funkenstein were on um, Atlantic. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, uh, and, the, and the interesting thing was, I don't know how much George would appreciate this, but when he's sitting in standing in front of that studio going, go, eh, 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 eh. he really didn't know whose recording this would be for. Would it be for, George, would it be for Parliament, Funkadelic, Bootsy, 
Horny Horns, Parlet, Rise of Frankenstein, until it got, you know, further down, you know, the creative process where he decided who it would go to. But the bill went to every one of those record companies. They all paid the bill. I think they knew they were getting screwed. But at this point, if you had a funk mob uh, artist on your label, you were doing well. So they just paid. <laughs> There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.